seated. Well, please turn with me your Bibles to the prophet Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 1 through 11 this evening, but I will read to verse 17 to set the context. Warning about that day. So we'll begin reading at verse 1. Blow the trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming, for it is at hand. A day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like the morning clouds spread over the mountains. A people come great and strong, the like of whom has never been, nor will there ever be any such after them, even for many successive generations. A fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness. Surely nothing shall escape them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like swift steeds so they run. With a noise like chariots over mountaintops they leap, like the noise of a flaming fire that devours the stubble, like a strong people set in battle array. Before them the people writhe in pain, all faces are drained of color. They run like mighty men. They climb the wall like men of iron. Everyone marches in formation, and they do not break ranks. They do not push one another. Everyone marches in his own column. Though they lunge between the weapons, they are not cut down. They run to and fro in the city. They run on the wall. They climb into the houses. They enter at the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and moon grow dark, and the stars diminish their brightness. The Lord gives voice before his army, for his camp is very great. For strong is the one who executes his word, for the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can endure it? Now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. He knows if he will turn, who knows if he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and nursing babes. Let the bridegroom go out from his chamber and the bride from her dressing room. Let the priests who minister to the Lord weep between the porch and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, O Lord, and do not give your heritage to reproach. That the nation should rule over them. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Amen. Well, let us pray. Well, Lord our God, we're thankful for all that you teach us in the scriptures, even as we come and consider that terrifying day of the Lord. We do ask that you send forth your spirit as we consider a difficult text, but we so often are encouraged and uplifted even the passages that frighten. And so help us to see that the warnings about the great and coming day are meant for the good of your people. And we're thankful that as we consider what our sin deserves, we are thankful all the more for Christ who forgives us. And it's because of him that we have forgiveness. And so we ask and pray again that you'd be with us this night, that you provide encouragement for your people, that you would provide salvation for those who do not know you. And we do pray in all things you would be glorified. Be with us, we pray, in the name of Christ. Amen. 
Well, often modern preachers have avoided talking about hell, fire, and brimstone. They might think it's probably too terrifying. They might want to win people with love. Perhaps they might think it's not very loving to talk about hell, fire, and brimstone and to talk about what our sin deserves. Now, there are many wonderful things about Christianity, the salvation we have, the forgiveness of sins, but we must also consider the importance of understanding what our sin deserves. There is still some utility when we speak about the day of the Lord, when we speak about the judgment that man deserves. We need to understand the seriousness of our sin, the wickedness of our sin, but also understand and see what our sin deserves and heed the warning to flee the wrath to come. And certainly we see that here in the prophet Joel with this coming day of the Lord. The coming day of the Lord is a picture of final judgment. And so Israel was called to sound the alarm about the coming of God's terrifying day. Now, one response in light of that is terror and fear, but hopefully that terror and fear would lead to repentance And we know that God's elect repent. We know that God's elect turn from their idols to the true and living God. We need to see just how terrifying the day of the Lord is, just how terrifying that day shall be in light of the fact that this is what sin deserves. But as we see that, then we can see just how gracious and good God truly is. Because what makes this day so terrifying is not what shall come to pass, but the one who is behind it the one who is judge over all the world and the one who shall judge this entire world. And so certainly Israel's day is coming. Certainly Judah's day is coming, to be more precise. I do think it is prior to the exile, prior to 586 BC, when the southern kingdom was taken away. It seems to be focused on Jerusalem and Judah, seems to be focused on that southern kingdom, Uh, The implication could be the northern kingdom has already been taken away in 722 BC. And so that great and terrifying day for the people of Israel is very near. And so there's a lot of warning. There's a lot of destruction, a lot of uh, gloominess that we see in the first part of the prophet Joel. But there are also calls to repentance. And there's also sections that deal with refreshment and restoration in light of the desolation that sin Bring. So the key themes we've seen already, and we'll see them again, day of the Lord, restoration, repentance, and God's mercy. And so chapter one dealt with that immediate disaster, the locusts. And now we transition to deal with that impending disaster, and the two kind of go hand in hand. That impending disaster is Israel's end. That impending disaster is the day of the Lord. And the terrifying thing again is that God is behind it. God is behind the locusts. And God is behind the coming day of the Lord as the one who's going to judge his people for their wickedness. So the problem really is the coming day of the Lord and the terror that it brings. Fear is the response that we are to have as we read Joel 2 verses 1 through 11. Terror is the response that is meant to be elicited as we read Joel 2 verses 1 through 11. But thankfully for the people of God, any terror that we might have had hopefully gives way to hope, hopefully gives way to assurance, hopefully gives way to praise and joy when we consider the amazing grace of our God. And even too, in this warning, there is something very kind about God's warning. The fact that God would warn this world, that God would warn people that that day is coming is a kindness of our God. And so, In Joel 2, verses 1 through 11, Yahweh sounds the alarm, but the coming day of judgment 
that he will bring. It's this sounding of the alarm. It's this terrifying day. It's what this day is going to look like. As we've seen in Hosea, it's the sin aspect we focused on. Uh, But we see with Joel, we see what sin brings. And this is a very terrifying picture of what that day shall look like. So we'll look at this terrifying picture of the day of the Lord under two headings this evening. First of all, we'll see a warning about the day in verses 1 and 2. And then secondly, we will see a terrifying picture of that day in verses 3 through 11. So the warning and the picture. The warning about that day and the picture of that terrifying day. So let's first look at a warning about the day in verses 1 and 2. Now again, the context is important. The locust plague uh, is perhaps what was that immediate disaster. Certainly commentators are divided whether it's a literal locust or figurative locust. Certainly uh, desolation curses were part of Deuteronomy 28. Uh, But we do see it seems to be that they were invading armies as well uh, in Joel chapter 1. But the invading army is very uh, very much in view with what we see here in Joel chapter 2. We come to this day of the Lord. We've seen that already in verse 15 of chapter 1. Alas, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as destruction from the Almighty. So the day of the Lord has come. It's with respect to Jerusalem's end. They shall be vomited out of the land for their violations of the old covenant. Remember, the old covenant was all about life in the land. It was a covenant of works for Israel uh, that if they did what was right, they received blessings in the land, not salvific, not saving, but blessings in the land. If they did what was wrong, they were going to be cursed and kicked out of that land. And certainly God was very patient with them for a very, very long time. And now that imminent day Uh, that day is near, that day is imminent. It is coming very soon. And so the days of the Lord in Israel's history, 722 BC and 586 BC. And so we see this imagery that is used to describe the day. And certainly it's the idea of a watchman seeing the coming army. And we've seen this already with the prophet Nahum when we saw Nineveh's end. Now that's an enemy of God's people. We saw how relentless that day is going to be when Nineveh shall be no more. But now it's going to be Israel. Now it's going to be the people of God. Now it's going to be Judah. We're going to see just how terrifying that day is. So it seems to be that there is this, uh, this vig- uh, uh, imagery of the army is coming. The army is coming from uh, far away. And then the watchman who stands guard by night, he sees what's coming and he is sounding the alarm. So we have to have that in view. And as he sees it, that army just gets closer and closer and closer before they take over. And so we see this alarm for the day in verse 1. This watchman's call from Zion. Blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Ezekiel is a watchman in Ezekiel 33. The disciples in Mark 13 are called watchmen. We could say pastors. We could say teachers are watchmen. That is to warn people about the coming day of the Lord and to call them to repent. Flee the wrath to come in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord is coming. That day is imminent. Save save yourself in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in this case, Jerusalem is under attack. The city of God is under attack. Now, perhaps there was this assumption after 701 
BC. If you don't know what 701 BC is, that's okay. But we see in Isaiah 36 and 37, there was an Assyrian army who almost took out the southern kingdom. There was an Assyrian king who almost took out Jerusalem. That was Sennacherib. He basically had it. He basically was at the gates. He was at Jerusalem. That was the last place to take. But what happens? Hezekiah prays and an angel of the Lord routs uh, the army of Assyria. So perhaps Jerusalem thinks they're a bit invincible now. Perhaps they think nothing can happen to them. Well, as they're going to see and as we're going to see that that is not the case at all. They have violated the covenant, and this is the result that God is going to destroy them. So there's going to be a lot of fear in that day. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. Let them fear all those who are part of this people. And the reason being, the day of the Lord is coming. That motif, that theme that permeates uh, the prophets, that coming day of God's judgment, for it is at hand. And certainly it would be a jarring thing to hear sirens. And so it would be a jarring thing for all the people of God to hear someone shouting, here come the armies, here comes Babylon, here comes invaders. It would be a very jarring thing and a very frightening thing uh, for all of those people to hear. But the day of the Lord is at hand. It is coming. It is here. Babylon is invading. Now, there are days of the Lord that are used for judgment against Israel's enemies. Certainly Babylon is pictured in Isaiah 13, but here it is the people of God. And so the watchman sounds the alarm for that day. He makes this call in Zion. The day of the Lord is at hand. The day of the Lord is here. Then we see the darkness of that day. We see just how terrifying that day truly is. They need to be aware of its coming and just how terrifying it truly is. So we see this cosmic phenomena. We see darkness all around. Now I'll explain the importance of darkness when we get to verse 10, but darkness is repeated throughout the scriptures to describe judgment. You know, the, the sun and the moon grow dark, the stars diminish. That is also throughout the scriptures to describe God's judgment because it is a very terrifying thing. Darkness is a very terrifying thing, whether we want to admit it or not. I used to live in a house with three stories. We had a basement. Even when I was 15, I'd turn the lights off and run up the stairs because it was freaky down there because there's this big, big hallway and you just had to run up the stairs. Darkness is terrifying. And so this day is going to be very terrifying, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness like the morning clouds that spread over the mountains, that they spread across the mountains, so that darkness will be. It's going to cover everything whatsoever. This invasion, this terror that shall come shall be nothing like anyone has seen before. This darkness, a people, verse 2, come great and strong. A people come. So it is an army. It is a king, another kingdom coming and functioning as instruments of God's judgment against Israel, the like of whom has never been this people mighty and strong, nor will there ever be any such after them, even after many successive generations. It's going to be unlike anything they've ever seen. The locusts are unlike anything they've ever seen. The locusts in Egypt were unlike anything they ever saw. Remember in Exodus chapter 10. And for Israel, the locusts were like unlike anything they've ever seen. But this day will be unlike anything they have ever seen as well. It's all part of God's 
judgment, judging Egypt and judging Israel now. There will never be anything like it, even for many successive generations. It's meant to highlight for us just how terrifying this day is going to be. There is going to be nothing like it. And there really was nothing like what happened to Jerusalem. And there's really going to be nothing like the day when Christ comes back. There's going to be nothing like the day when Jesus returns. It's going to be a great day for the people of God, but it's going to be a very terrifying day for those who are not in Christ. And so for the people of God, it's meant to elicit certainly a little bit of terror, but also to elicit joy that we are in Christ Jesus. But for those not in Christ Jesus, you should be very afraid. You should be very terrified about that great and coming day of the Lord, just how memorable it will be. So terrifying, warning, and one thing I think we can see in verses 1 and 2, certainly just how terrifying it is, but I think the thing we can highlight here is truly the gift of God's warning. It's the fact that God does delay the coming day of the Lord. Now, the Bible says the day of the Lord is imminent, 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 Peter 3. It is coming, but it's been imminent for 2,000 years. Remember, a day with the Lord is like 1,000 years. Turn with me to 2 Peter 3. Second Peter chapter 3. In chapter 3, he is talking about the day of the Lord. He says in verse 7, The heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. This world shall pass away. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us. So there's the gift of his warning. Second Chronicles 36 highlights that with respect to Israel. God was gracious. He sent the prophets. He warned, he warned, he warned, he warned, he warned, and they mocked the prophets. They scoffed at the prophets, and we see their end in Second Chronicles 36. We also see that God is pleased to delay his coming day of the Lord for the good of the people of God, not willing that any should perish, that is, any of his elect, but that all should come to repentance. As God delays, as Christ's return is delayed, at least humanly speaking, of course, it's on point with respect to God's decrees, but with respect to our vantage point, it seems like a very long time. But as God delays, as God tarries, as Christ tarries, it is for the salvation of God's people. Thanks be to God he didn't come back before you believed. Thanks be to God that he saved you, he, Christ died for you, and the Spirit worked in you to save you before Christ's return. Because God is good. His delay means the salvation of his elect. And then he goes on to talk about that day, what it's going to be like in verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. You can't figure what day, when it's going to be. You can't do Bible math. You can't do Bible this to try and figure. You do not know when the day of the Lord is going to be. In which the heavens will pass away with great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, here's what we ought to do in light of that coming. 
What manner of person ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? See how practical eschatology is. Light of God's coming, we need to live a godly life because we are in Christ, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, uh, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So God is pleased to delay. God is pleased to warn. That's what the gospel call is, isn't it? When we call sinners to repent, it's that warning. When we tell sinners the bad news, you're a wretch and hellfire and brimstone is what your sin deserves. We don't just stop there though, right? We don't just give the bad news and then just never say anything else. We give the bad news, then we say, here is the good news. Jesus lived, died, and rose again. And if you believe upon him, you shall be saved. Because one of the most blessed things about what our Savior has done is that that end time judgment came forward at Calvary's tree. The judgment that you and I deserve, the everlasting damnation that we deserve, Christ bore it in his person. Christ bore it in himself as the one who died on that tree, as the one who died for his people. He is a gracious and wonderful savior, but we see the justice and mercy of God coming together at the cross of Christ. So if you're an unbeliever, flee the wrath to come. Flee the wrath to come by believing upon Christ Jesus. You can't say you were never warned because we just warned you. I just warned you that this day is going to come. Flee the wrath to come in Christ Jesus. So we can thank God for his warnings, but we also ought to appreciate his warnings in light of just how terrifying this day is going to be. So that's the warning of that day. Let's then look secondly at a terrifying picture of that day in verses 3 through 11. And we'll see in verses 3 through 5. So this is that terrifying picture. We saw the vivid picture of Nahum's end, or sorry, not Nahum's end, Nineveh's end in Nahum. But we see here the end of Israel, verses 3 through 5, a devouring day. And one, uh, two words that are repeated in the next sort of three sections here, before them, before them, before them, before them, the people writhe, before them, the earth's quake, before them, fire devours. So verse three, we see it's an army like fire. As an army gets closer and closer, the watchmen can see just what it is they are doing, and they are like fire. Now, there are many judgment curses that are in the scriptures that talk about fire, certainly hell, fire, and brimstone. It is, hell is going to be that everlasting fire. Uh, and so it is a vivid picture of God's curses and God's cursing those who do not believe on Christ and those who must be punished in their sin. And we see that here, a fire devours before them. As that army is making its way closer, they are like that flaming fire, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them. So as they're making their way, there is blessedness, there is lushness, but as they're making their way, what are they doing? They're just annihilating it. They're just destroying it. Certainly, perhaps our attention is drawn back to the Garden of Eden on purpose, uh, to recognize that God, there, man made God, uh, God made man upright, and God made man to enjoy good things. God made man and put him in the garden to enjoy blessedness. But what happened? Adam sinned and he brought cursing. 
He brought sin and misery into this fallen world. And certainly Israel has brought sin and misery upon themselves because of the sins that they have engaged in. Certainly Ezekiel 28 also mentions the Garden of Eden as the mountain of God. God was good. God made, made this world and called it good. But man brought misery and God must punish sin. And he does so by way of this army that burns. So the land is like the garden before them and behind them a desolate wilderness. Surely nothing shall escape them. As they invade, nothing shall be, uh, uh, be of um, escape their grasp. And so we see that they're an army like fire. They're devouring, but they're also an army so swift. Verse 4, their appearance is like the appearance of horses and like swift steeds, so they run. Certainly the locusts, uh, possibly, you know, as we consider the locusts and what they were, they all, perhaps as they uh, made their noises, they sounded like an invading fire. They sound like a consuming fire with the sounds that they make. One commentator pointed that out. Uh, but even here, this army is like that fire. They're like that fire that comes, but they're also like a swift steed that is formidable. They're swift and strong. And as these men are coming, you really don't stand a chance. <laughs> That's really uh, what verses 5 through 9 really talk about. The noise like chariots over mountaintops they leap. Like the noise of a flaming fire that devours the stubble. Like a strong people set in battle array, they're in their arrangements, they're ready to come, there's military strategy, and you're not going to be able to stop them. You're not going to be able to stop this army as it comes. That would have been a terrifying thing as the watchman sees it coming and just how inevitable it truly is. Their Israel's end is inevitable, and God is the one who is bringing it about. So it's a devouring day by way of this army. But also it's a very painful day, verses 6 through 9. Notice, verse 6, Before them the people writhe in pain, all faces are drained of color. Now it seems the enemy has got to the gates, the enemy has broken through, and they're ready to release their carnage upon all the people. So what can the people do? They just can only be afraid. Their life is about to end. The color has drained from their face. They are so filled with fear and pain. It's going to be a painful day. The fear the people have, and one reason it's so fearful, is again that relentless pain, uh, relentless pain the army will bring. They just keep coming. They run like mighty men, verse 7. They climb the wall like men of war. Everyone marches in formation. They do not break their ranks. You keep hitting them, you keep smacking them, but they do not stop. Verse 8, they do not push one another. Everyone marches in his own column. Though they lunge between the weapons, they are not cut down. There's nothing you can do. They just keep coming. They don't break rank. They just keep pressing on. There's nothing that anybody can do. They continue to march in their formation. And they run to and fro. We see this chaos that they are causing. They run to and fro in the city, verse 9. They run on the wall. They climb into the houses. They enter at the windows like a thief. Nobody can hide. Nobody can get away. The army is here, and the judgment has come. It's going to be a very uh, painful and paralyzing day. But it's also going to be a very terrible day, verse 10. And so we see the cosmic phenomena here again. The earth quakes before them. The earth shakes. Perhaps there could be an earthquake, could have a, that 
judgment sort of idea in view, this earthquake, or it could be the ground just shakes with all the horses that are coming. And so the earth shakes, the heavens tremble, the sun and moon grow dark, and the stars diminish their brightness. The reason this is important is because those things typically give one stability. The sun always seems to rise, whether we see it through the clouds or not, but the sun always seems to rise. The earth below us seems to be stable. The heavens seem to be fine. And here they are, they're trembling. The earth is quaking. The things that give us security are going to be removed. And there is nothing that we can do about it. The sun and the moon grow dark. Those things that we know that are a constant shall be removed. The stars diminish their brightness. The things that do a certain thing, the thing that it does, shall be no more. That's how terrifying the day is. Something that is stable, something that gives us security, will be no more. And there's nowhere to hide. It's going to be very, very terrifying on that day. And the most terrifying thing about it really is where Joel drives to in verse 11. Now we know who brings it. But verse 11, here's the frightening reality. All of this is God's doing. This invading army is God's army. Verse 11, the Lord gives voice before his army, for his camp is very great. For strong is the one who executes his word, for the day of the Lord is great and terrible. We see it as God's invading army. Babylon is God's instrument of judgment upon the people of Israel. And God is perfectly just to bring about this punishment. Remember, God entered into covenant with them. And all Israel said, yes, Lord, we will do it. Yes, Lord, we will keep that law. Yes, Lord, we will do what you say. And now they did not do that very thing. And so here is the Lord after long suffering, after many warnings, after many delays, God is now going to bring judgment upon his people. The divine origin of the day is in view in verse 11. And one thing that is quite terrifying when we consider its New Testament application is the fact that Israel probably thought that they were going to be protected by winged creatures, namely angels like they were with Sennacherib. But not this time. This time, it is God's doing. This time, it is God who is bringing about his army against, or this army against the people of God. One writer says, instead of myriads of thousands of the winged hosts of the heavenly army coming to the protection, aid, and vindication of the nation... Joel describes a cloud of winged creatures, he has locusts in view here, coming rather in devastating judgments. That is, God is the one who is bringing this very thing about. And so when you consider that day and how terrifying it is and how vivid it is, verse 11, the last question there is an apt question. Who can endure its day? If there is this relentless army, if there is this judgment that comes from God, who can endure this day? And this is where we need to consider some New Testament application. There are quite a few allusions back to Joel 2, verses 1 through 11. And the first place we're going to look is Mark 13. You can turn with me to Mark 13. Also Matthew 24, but I know Mark 13 a little more than Matthew 24. 
Mark 13 is Mark's Olivet Discourse. And the context is the destruction of the temple. The context is the end of Old Covenant Israel. And so what I pointed out in verses 24 through 27 of Mark 13, especially verses 24 and 25, is that God is bringing Old Covenant judgment upon Israel to make way for the New Covenant blessings that come with Christ. In fact, I think I titled it Out with the Old uh, and In with the New. And so there is gloom on that day. And we have to remember that Israel has uh, rejected the Messiah. Israel as a nation has rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. He goes into the temple. Uh, he's, he sees that it's no longer a house of prayer, but a den of thieves. We see that the, it talks about the wicked vine dressers. This is all paving the way and pointing ahead uh, to chapter 13. We see the challenges from the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes. They are all rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ. And they are rejecting the Messiah who has come, which signals that the old covenant has come to an end. And Christ is going to, as he says in verses 1 and 2, actually verse 2, do you see these uh, great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. He is going to make an end of that old covenant. He's going to make an end of that temple. And as we see in Mark 14, we see that he's going to build the temple up in three days. In Mark 14, one of the witnesses, the false witnesses said, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands and within three days, I will build another made without hands. He says a similar thing in John, in John chapter two, the he is the temple. He is the one by which we have access to God. He is the one to whom the temple points to. And so he's going to do away with the old covenant entirely. And so God does bring the people back, right, under Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. But then we see that it's not complete. It's not yet. It's not full because they're waiting for a king. And then the king comes and that ethnic Israel has rejected him. So what does he do? He kicks them out. He destroys them. And he destroys them at AD 70. AD 70 is another day of the Lord. It's the end of Israel, the old covenant people, Israel as a body politic in full that makes way for that new covenant. The son of man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. He is the one who will send his, uh, he will send his angels and gather together his elect from the four winds from the farthest part of the earth uh, to the farthest part of heaven. He's going to gather all his people. It's going to be that new covenant way. And so Israel's end is seen in Mark 13. But then we can also see the world's end. And so you can turn with me to Revelation 6, 8, and 9. Well, we'll start with 6. <clears throat> Revelation 6, I do think, as I've said many times, the seal, the trumpets, and the bulls all refer to the same time period, just from different angles, and it intensifies. And it describes uh, God's judgment on this world. And the fact that God will judge uh, his uh, the enemies of God's people. But I do think it describes the time fully between Christ's first and second coming. And so seals, we see the stamp. We see the author, the one who is behind the judgment. The trumpets, we see the one who is providing warning. And that's certainly seen in Joel. So it shouldn't surprise us that the trumpets allude back to Joel. <laughs> 
And also as well, the bulls are the, the wrath of God, the, the wrath that is being filled up, the sins of the people is going to be filled up, and then they're going to be poured out upon them. So it's all describing that same area. So, so Revelation 6, uh, we do see uh, the, the seals. Who is it that's going to bring an end to this world? And I do think Revelation 6 talks about the end of this world. We see, look, he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it's shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll, when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains. And said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. Christ is going to bring judgment upon his enemies. And it's going to be a great and terrifying day as this world is dissolved. And the things that we think are constant shall be removed. It's also in 8.12 describing uh, the fourth trumpet talking about how a third has been struck, a third of the moon, a third of the stars, a third of the sun. But we can look again at Revelation 9, verses 7 through 9. And in this case, the image refers back to the horses, refers back to the steeds. And certainly we, the idea with, with Revelation 6 and 8, it's the end of the world, but we certainly see in Revelation 9 the torment uh, of God's judgment by way of the devil. That's very hard for us, isn't it? God is not the author of sin, but God does give permission to the devil to torment. And we see that in verse 1. We see, and I saw a star fall from heaven to the earth to whom was given the key to the bottomless pit. He's talking about the devil. Now, thankfully, the devil is it's permissive. It's not forever. God still has authority. Verse 5, and they were not given authority to kill. They were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months, to torment those who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. So it's going to be against not the people of God, but in this case, the torment is going to be against the enemies of God. Let's be honest, Israel became the enemy of God in the Old Covenant by not doing what God had said. So there is meant to be seriousness here, but meant to be comfort. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion, when it strikes a man. In those days, men will seek death, but they will not find it. I tried to highlight, I think this refers to psychological torment that in this case, spiritual beings bring. In this case, demons bring. Now, thanks be to God for salvation in Christ Jesus, but there are psychological curses in Deuteronomy 28. Madness, bewilderment, driven mad, trembling. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 28. Keep your finger or your thumb in Revelation 9, but Deuteronomy 28, just so you don't, just so you can see I'm not entirely out to lunch tonight, but verses 28 through 34. The Lord will strike you with madness and blindness and confusion of heart. These are all curses. You shall grope at noonday as a blind man gropes in darkness you shall not prosper in your ways. You shall be only oppressed and plundered continually, and no one shall save you. Then 65 through 67. And among those nations you shall find no rest. 
nor shall the sole of your foot have a resting place, but the Lord will give you a trembling heart, failing eyes and anguish of soul. Your life shall hang in doubt before you, and you shall fear day and night and have no assurance of life. In the morning you shall say, oh, that it were evening. And at evening you shall say, oh, that it were morning, because of the fear which terrifies your heart, because of the sight which your eyes see. So psychological torment is part of God's judgment. And according to Revelation 9, it's going to be on those who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Now, why is this encouraging for the people of God? Why is this meant to be an encouraging thing for Christians? Well, remember, Revelation was written to the church, a church going through it, a church going through persecution, a, per a church being uh, tormented by unbelievers. And so here's this encouragement that the lamb sits upon the throne and the lamb will bring his wrath upon the enemies of God. And thanks be to God that the people of God cannot be touched by these locusts. That is the encouraging thing of Revelation 9. We cannot be touched by these Locusts, And we see what they are, these demons. The shape of them were like horses, prepared for battle, alluding to Joel 2. We saw the teeth, the lion's teeth, in verse 8. In verse 9, they had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots, with many horses running into battle. They are going to be formidable. Let's be honest, demons are formidable, but there is a greater being who is Christ. There is a greater being who is God who is over them. Brethren, thanks be to God as well that the good angels are what? Hebrews 1. Ministering spirits to those who inherit salvation. God helps us. God uplifts us by the Holy Spirit. God gives us the strength and aid we need by the Holy Spirit. And thanks be to God that there are angels who do minister to the people of God uh, uh, for those who inherit salvation. Now, I have no idea how that all works. I'm just going to say that out loud. I don't know much about angels and demons, but there's some things we can know. But there are terrifying things that we see here, but it's meant to be encouraging in many ways for the people of God. But it is also meant to be a warning. I mean, again, it's the trumpet. It's the fifth trumpet. It's meant to be a warning for those who are not in Christ. Flee to Christ. Flee the wrath to come in Christ. That is another one of these purposes for these trumpets. Hendrickson says, let us bear in mind that this too is one of the trumpets. God uses even the work of the devil as a punishment and as a warning for the wicked. A warning in order that they repent. That is the purpose of a trumpet. That's why it's, okay, seal, it's God who's going to do it. Trumpet, okay, he's sounding the alarm. But when we get to the bulls, it's over, right? The wrath is poured out. They are trumpets sounding the alarm. That's why God's warnings are gracious and good. And one of the responses these warnings are meant to elicit, and they will elicit, they will bring about in the people of God, in the elect, is repentance. And in fact, turn back to Joel. Joel talks a lot about repentance. There's a lot of sorrow, a lot of scariness, but Joel is talking about repentance. We read that in verse 12. Now, therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart. 
Turn to me with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Turn to me. Turn from your idols. Have this change of mind concerning sin and believe upon Christ Jesus. In fact, isn't exactly what Peter says in Acts 2? And what does Peter quote in Acts 2? He quotes Joel 2, verses 28 through 32. And so this idea of repentance certainly just doesn't carry the idea of changing one's mind. And in Acts also is, refers to the whole act of conversion. But there is a very rich prophetic background. If one turns to God, what's he going to do? He is going to forgive because he is gracious and merciful. And even in Acts chapter 2, they were the ones who crucified the Lord of glory. Isn't that what Peter says? You are the ones who crucified him. And then what happens? They're cut to the heart. And what does Peter say? Repent and be baptized. Because that is what this whole thing is meant to elicit. It's the whole thing is meant to elicit fear, but also to be a vehicle by which God's people are called to repentance. And thankfully, those who turn to the true and living God have right standing before God. And this is where we're going to end today. Who can endure it? Joel 2, 11. And it's certainly alluded to in Revelation 6, 17. So turn back to Revelation 6, 17. And this is where we are going to close. Remember Nahum asked a similar question in Nahum chapter 1? Who can endure it? Who can stand? Well... John also asks a similar question in verse 17 of Revelation 6. For the great day of his wrath has come. Who is able to stand? Who is able to endure that day? And that's what Revelation 7 answers. It's the people of God. The 144,000 is a figurative number to refer to the totality of the redeemed people of God. Who can endure the day of his coming? It's Christ's people. It is the multitude. It is those who have the seal of God on their foreheads. It's those who've been chosen before the foundation of the world. Those who've been saved by Christ. Those for whom Christ has died. Those for whom the Spirit applies the benefits of Christ. They shall stand. The ones who've been sealed by God. That they are God's. They shall stand in that day. And thankfully, it's a great multitude that no man can number. We see that in verse 9. There's behold these great multitude and no one can number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. That is where salvation lies. It lies in the lamb and those who are in the lamb do not need to fear that day. And the application we can close with brethren is, you don't need to fear that day. You don't need to fear that day when Christ comes again. You don't need to fear that judgment day 
because you are already clothed in Christ's righteousness. That day is going to be terrifying for those that are not in Christ Jesus. But as we consider what our sin deserves, as we consider what our wickedness deserves, isn't it comforting to know that we can stand on that very day? And whatever terror we might have, hopefully that gives way to great joy. Hopefully that gives way to great rejoicing, knowing that we are forgiven in Christ Jesus and we stand in him. Terrifying day, terrifying reality for those not in Christ. But as we consider that terrifying reality, may it magnify what Christ has done for us all the more. Well, let us pray. Oh, Lord, our God, you are truly just and you are truly the judge of all the world and you shall do right. And we know that you must punish sin. We know that we have sinned against an infinite God and we deserve an infinite punishment, but we are thankful for an infinite savior, that the one who is God took on a human nature to die on, uh, on the cross for wretched people like us. We know that our sin, our sin deserves everlasting damnation. We know our sin deserves to be fearful at such a terrifying day, but we are thankful that we are forgiven. We are thankful that we can stand. We're thankful that we can endure it because Christ Jesus died in our stead. And as we consider just how terrifying this day truly is, may we warn people all the more. May you give us wisdom. May you give us opportunity. May you give us times in which we can share the truth uh, with others. May you give us times to know when to share the seriousness of it and talk about things like this. But as we do, may we always come back to the gospel of free and sovereign grace in Christ Jesus. And so we are thankful for your warnings. We are thankful for your goodness. We are thankful for your forgiveness. And we're thankful for all that you do. Thank you that we stand on that day and we do not need to fear uh, that day. We don't need to fear the wrath of the lamb because the lamb is the one who took away our sins. So may this give us encouragement as we go into the world. Give us the strength that we need, we pray in the name of Christ.